welcome to this edition of Old School Guns, our 82nd episode. So, um, really want to start off with a couple of quick things. As you know, the podcast is in three segments. Uh, we normally do 2A or politically related news. Then I do some commentary on gun culture, and that includes content that's put out in podcasts and YouTube and all these other places. And the third is questions and answers, which is actually my favorite, because usually we can dig up some pretty interesting questions, and I enjoy answering those. So let's get to it. Um, in the in the I told you so segment, you know, I mean, I hate to, I, I, you know, I hate it when I think of the worst case and it somehow starts coming true. But that's what's happening. Um, I told you that they would put these masks on you the rest of their life if they could. And that's borne out by the fact that, that sleepy Joe Biden, you know, when he's not feeding pigeons or or um, eating, eating his cream corn and tapioca pudding in the old folks' home, he wants a national mask mandate. And there's no real end date for this. That's the scary part. It's not like, hey, we need to do this for the next two months. Um, you know, he's talking about a national mask mandate, even though we're well over the crest of this coronavirus nonsense. Um, you know, and, and you wonder, you figure, well, that's just him saying that. Well, now the CDC, you know, which has not come out of this with the best reputation. Uh, their estimates were wrong. A lot of the information they had are, is wrong. So they're not they're not the big experts or the um, the oracle of knowledge that we that we seem to have wished they would be. Uh, so anyway, we have these uh, this report comes out from the CDC saying, well, if we just would keep these coronavirus measures precautionary measures in place, it'll really reduce the flu season. And of course, everybody with a brain knows this because. Obviously, you're stopping the spread of germs. You're staying away from other people. You know, you're not eating at the buffet that somebody was just sneezing at ten minutes before ten minutes before you arrived. So all of these things, quite naturally, will will you know make sure the flu does not uh, spread and and is not as widespread and is not as uh, um, have a big impact as it normally would during you know flu season, which we're getting ready to to enter. So. You know, naturally, those things would be good. But however, you know, the the effect on business, the effect on schools, the effect on civil liberties, the effect on everything is just too great. You know, we just tolerate the flu season. So, uh, you know, but I, I told you so. They love this, this mask and social distancing and all this other stuff. Keeping things shut down, keeping you out of your restaurants, away from whatever activities you want to do, participate in in a group. You know, they're, they're after all that. And here is prima facie proof. Absolute freaking proof. Um, Moscow, Idaho. You know, a church group was singing hymns out in public and a couple of them got arrested because they didn't have a mask on. Arrested now. Not just cited. And I assume they were probably warned. I assume they were probably warned before they were arrested. But it actually came down to them getting arrested and put in a paddy wagon and taken to a jail, which is the worst possible place you could ever be if you're if you're really worried about not spreading coronavirus or other germs. A jail is a petri dish that literally grows all that stuff. We found that out. You know, prisons and, and jails were the worst place to be. So uh, they're arresting people and taking them there. The other arrests that happened was, and, and of course, I, I kind of think that there's some blame to go around on this, but I think it was way heavy-handed, was the lady at a middle school football game. She's sitting in the stands with I guess her other kids kind of and she was socially distanced I saw the video she's away from other people but she wasn't wearing a mask so they probably warned her and then some obese cop basically roughs her up and then winds up tasing her and then they haul her off um, you know that that's thuggery that's absolute thuggery 
and that doesn't need to happen. I mean, I don't know who that police officer was. He was he was apparently you know, but he was a lot larger. He was a uh, a black guy, probably three hundred pounds. A lot of it was fat, and um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think he was a real poli- he may not have been a real beat cop policeman who has that kind of that streetwise thing he may have been one of those you know school you know police people on the dare program or some other you know some other kind of uh, easy assignment so you know this guy but you know roughing up this and and you know what the worst part was nobody around did anything there were a lot of able-bodied men who should have stood up and said hey leave that leave her alone we are all witnesses stop it right now and maybe even that guy should have been that cop should have been put under citizen's arrest because that was thuggery I don't, I don't care what the law is you, you just don't beat on somebody rough them up and tase them because they won't put on a stupid mask that is ridiculous and that is the kind of you know i mean talk about police state behavior talk about the worst forms of behavior yet that's what these liberals want they want for some ungodly, unknown reason, they see it as a victory that they can make you do something you don't want to do, which is put on a mask, socially distance, and do all the rest of this. Now, I, I would say that there was a time and a place for all that, but we're coming out of it now. People need jobs. You know, you can't just live on stimulus money and, and hoping that they'll pass the package. You can't do that. You have to go out and earn a living, and you have to take risk. Uh, the risk is you have to be around other people. You have to be in an environment where other people are around. And just like you might catch a cold or worse, catch the flu, you, you might catch this coronavirus. You, you just might. I don't think it's going to go away. So we better figure out how to deal with it. The good news is there seems to be some promising vaccines. Once a couple of those get approved, there may and there may be a couple different ones. It looks like several several large entities are working on them, and they all may turn out to be fundamentally have the same effectiveness. But I mean, it still goes back to I told you so. These people want to put you in a mask, and even if coronavirus goes away, as I said with this CDC study, um, they want to keep these kind of things in place. To mitigate the regular flu, you know, the normal seasonal flu that people go and get shots for and everything else. Um, I'm sorry, we can't live in a germ-free environment. I'd like to. I hate germs. I hate germs. I hate it when I get a cold, you know, and that's why I don't uh, I don't eat buffets. I think a buffet is dirty. I think, uh, you know, you never know who's there and who's been eating and, and who's been sneezing and you know, I, I mean, it's just, to me, it's just germ-filled. So I don't, I don't like eating at them at all. So, and I think your health, your health basically will reflect that. The less you eat there, the probably the healthier you are. And get flu shots and, and all the rest. Now, do I think it should be a mandatory vaccine? No. Hey, if you're stupid and you don't want to get the vaccine, then that's fine. You're, that's your personal choice. You get coronavirus and you wind up on a ventilator somewhere, you know that's that's on you because the you know once the vaccine's available it's out there for you to get so uh just it's very disappointing though it's disappointing to see some you know moscow idaho people getting hauled away i forget where the middle school thing was but it was some equally innocuous place i mean tasing somebody for that i mean look at all the here's here's the part that's disgusting Look at all the looting, rioting, and violent protesting, whatever you want to call it, that's been going on. And, you know, you see these people up in the police officers' faces and everything else. They're not getting tased, but here's this woman getting tased. Now, under Kevin's rules, I would have said, you know what, put on your mask. Be an adult. The guy asked, probably warned her and told her to put on the mask. So, you know, to say... I'm not going to do it. What are you going to do about it? Well, they will do something about it. So, you know, I'm sure she was warned probably multiple times to put it on. Or she could have just left, you know. I, I would have packed up and left. I'd have said, forget it, you know. The football game, whatever it is. Go sit in your car, you know, whatever. Um, that's just me not wanting to have a hassle or provoke a hassle. Because when you basically challenge their authority as... George Floyd and all the rest of them. You can't even remember the names now. 
have figured out when you're resisting arrest, they will put in measures that will basically overcome your resistance. And some of those measures are very, very unpleasant. And in this case, they were not warranted. I mean, they should have just left the woman alone. Give her, give her a ticket. Make her pay a $50 fine. You know, if you do that, she probably would never do it again because she probably doesn't want to cough up 50 bucks every time she goes out to a football game. So anyway, that's the, um, that's the, the deal on the, the horrible little virus. All right, the next thing is Supreme Court justice. You know, I'm glad to see this for a couple reasons. Number one is presidents come and go Barack Obama came and went you know George W. Bush came and went Bill Clinton came and went but Clinton put Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court and she was there for 27 years and you know frankly I'm no Ruth Bader Ginsburg fan I thought she was the wicked witch of the left I thought she never saw a leftist cause she didn't vote for she absolutely it didn't care about the Constitution and wasn't there a dust-up where she this is going back like 12 maybe 15 years where you know didn't she quote international law as a precedent or something I mean she she didn't care about the Constitution that to her was just another old document and that her intellect and her interpretation was the the best even if it's not founded in law and in the Constitution and that's what we actually need in the Supreme Court not people who want to make laws on their own based on their own whims or hey I read the code of Hammurabi and guess what you know I don't think this should be legal no 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 it's the Constitution and our frame of laws so you know I, I mean it's a good thing she's off the court I mean she she cashed out a hard way I, I, I know that but uh, I'm just not, I was not a big fan of hers, and I'm glad that she's gone off the court. And as far as all this stuff about these platitudes, well, she, you know, she and Antonin Scalia were great friends and blah, blah, blah. I don't know how that all works out. I can't be great friends with somebody who wants to probably tax me out of my home and, and out of my middle class life, take my guns away redistribute wealth stuff that I earn and I work for and redistribute it to others I don't know how I could be friends with somebody who honestly believes in that and acts upon it uh, as a consequence of their employment you know I mean I don't know how you can be friends but I think it just shows that all these people in power in many ways it's just a game to them it's just a big game so I hope they get somebody on the court who who actually takes it seriously reads the Constitution and applies you know the law to the Constitution so we don't get any more of these kooky rulings like the Obamacare mandate and all the rest of it so I guess we can now add Louisville to the list the, that whole Breonna Taylor thing that whole Breonna Taylor thing is completely misrepresented by the media you know they were serving a high-risk warrant it obviously went bad went violent and, you know, they're trying to portray Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend as these two saints who are just sitting in their apartment while the, the, the bad police crash in. And that is, that is just simply not the case. Um, her boyfriend was a known drug dealer. The, all kinds of shenanigans had gone on there. When the cops came in, guns came into play. And I don't think... And, and, you know, you could you could make a case that, well, when somebody's crashing into your place, you don't know if it's police or not. But I would say that it's, it's probably pretty evident due to the uniforms and the methods they use, and they're probably shouting police and everything else, that you can identify who that is and what that is pretty darn quickly because they don't want it to escalate into something like that. I'm sure once they bash down the door... They want to make sure that you know who's who and uh, um, that that violence does not come into play because you think they're intruders when in fact it's law enforcement serving a high-risk warrant trying to arrest somebody who is known to be very, very bad. So you can add Louisville to the list. And, and the worst part was the city in, the, in, a, in a pathetic attempt to kind of keep a lid on things paid her family 12 million bucks now i don't know about you but 12 million dollars seems to be like a whole lot of money 
for a questionable person to be getting in a very questionable circumstance. But they paid it. And, and now, of course, it's like they never gave anything. It's still the cries, no justice, no peace. And, you know, they won't be satis not satisfied with $12 million, even though that's really almost bribe or extortion money, however, however you want to look at it. Uh, so Louisville is another one. You know, I, I have to tell you, I hate using that phrase, but I use it all the time. But I should, I should uh, share with you I live in a small town in Kansas. Small town. Okay, it's even coming here, and it's even going to come to you. Uh, turns out there was a videographer, and and I may have I may have already briefly covered this, but a videographer came to town and staged a police stop. Apparently, had somebody sort of it was like play acting, if you will. They the the fake policeman stops the car. Somebody's in the car is recording it. The fake policeman uses a uh, an invective, supposedly a uh, um, a racial insult, you know, on and on, and it's quote on tape. Well, as it turns out, the police weren't involved. It was it was completely fake. It's it's a question of play acting. Yet they're trying to pin it on this tiny police force. It's probably got half a dozen officers, maybe. You know, that's how tiny it is. So this stuff is coming to you. This stuff is coming here to the tiny town in Kansas, and it's coming to wherever it is you live. Wherever it is you live, there can be some serious problems. Now, this was, a again, a pathetic, idiotic attempt. But had it gone viral and been more successful, what would that bring? Who would show up? And we've also seen at some of these protests, at first it was just kind of innuendo of, hey, you know, a, a pallet of bricks or a pallet of frozen water bottles arrives somewhere. Now we've actually seen where it's U-Haul trucks that have all kinds of things inside them. And we know the people who are renting these trucks obviously filling them with these these uh, items and pre-staging or staging them with the protests this is all a coordinated effort this just isn't a flash mob you know where somebody puts out a little deal on uh, messenger or or an email and people are a text and people just show up this is something quite different this is an organized protest and I mean like I said had they gotten any traction here I could be sitting in front of my house watching protesters getting violent as opposed to you know there's just a few delivery trucks and a couple of cars going up and down the road every now and again so you don't know one of these little things takes off becomes viral becomes viral because that's what they care about it becomes viral and there you are you're all of a sudden you know who have, I mean I, I've heard of Louisville Kentucky I've never been there it's probably a nice place I've never been to Kenosha Wisconsin you know I have been to Portland but there's there's other towns around it um, I have been to Seattle you know in the in the course of my of my travels but uh, you know so many of these are just becoming kind of these smaller out-of-the-way towns little smaller cities that you wouldn't think would be a flashpoint for something like this and yet they yet they are and it's um, any incident now can create this can create this and there's a chain reaction there's a chain reaction not only are they rioting in Louisville and and they you know they wounded a couple of policemen they've done all kinds of bad things that kind of stuff is spreading to some of these larger cities too you know it's almost a um you know the sympathetic reaction you know that they they get a reaction out of these really left-wing cities and you know new york portland seattle just to name a few probably some others so this is a this is an intractable problem and it's getting bigger and one only hopes that after the election well, here's my prediction. If Biden wins, the Biden Ugand, who are behind a lot of this, will probably go pretty much away. 
probably pretty much away because they're going to wait to see what happens uh how how much he's going to change things now he's not he's not going to nationally try to defund police or do anything there may be a couple little symbolic things and he might flap his you know would he be told to say a few things being the basically ventriloquist dummy that he is but i think i think some of this will go the two things that will go away are covid will all of a sudden not be such a problem anymore and these riots will will go away if trump wins which i think is the likely possibility i think these riots could get worse initially but then there will be since trump would not have to run for re-election again he would have much more of a free hand and he can run a much larger crackdown and uh, clean this mess up the way it really needs to be cleaned up nobody really likes to be held hostage by well you know you you see some of these some of these actions in these small towns where it's like people are out and you know hey they're outside dining in a sidewalk cafe thing or even inside a restaurant and these these antifa biden yugend types barge in start screaming at them will even sit at their table you know mess with their food all this kind of stuff you know you see that kind of behavior and um that could get a lot worse before it gets better that could get a lot worse before it gets better okay now let's talk about some gun stuff we're into this uh 22 minutes now and we can we can now get down to what this podcast is really about old school guns okay you heard me uh in the last podcast talk about the bubba gun that was uh that i received and um you know just to go over it again in case you you have forgotten or, or uh, didn't hear the last podcast it's a u.s model 1917 rifle that's that's been irreparably (laughs) uh changed to try to sporterize it and they did that by cutting off the uh, bridge where the stripper clip guide is they've milled down the ears of course removed the front removed the rear sight um and they've even done a few other little contouring things there's no way just so that everybody understands there's no way that this is ever restorable to military configuration so it would not it's never going to look like a 1917 rifle again unless you take the core of the rifle the receiver throw it away and you somehow have another one somewhere that's got all the ears and is all complete it's just never going to be what it was just never going to be what it was you just can't so anyway um I got this thing it's, it was bare white metal the the only the parts that were actually unmodified which are which is good is amazingly the barrel is at its original length and was not cut down it was however not really polished but kind of smoothed so that while you can still see the markings they're not the way they were probably they're they're not as strong as they were so some sort of polishing has taken place when they when they remove the old finish and the old finish may have even been um may have even been parkerized who knows he, what the rifle was whether it was a world war ii rebuild uh is is really kind of up for up for question i tend to believe it probably was simply based on the fact that the uh, the barrel and receiver are Remington, and the barrel date is twelve seventeen, and the receiver dates to just a few months after that, which is about right, because they would make the barrel the barrels would be you know they would have a big a pallet of barrels, and you know the receivers are harder to make, so there's plenty of barrels sitting there waiting for a receiver, and they can wait some months. So, you know that's 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 pretty normal. It has an Eddystone bolt. Um, it also has the trigger guard, which is also the trigger and trigger guard and all that, which is also unmolested, is a combination. Uh, on the inside of the trigger guard, there's a big W, which I assume is Winchester. I haven't really looked it up, but I assume that's Winchester. The um, uh, floor plate, the magazine floor plate, is Eddystone. And... Uh, you know the small parts on it i assume are, are original with it you know the, the 
little clip that holds the floor plate in and all that. So I assume that that's that's probably Winchester also. Uh, so there there you are. So it's it's all three manufacturers in this gun, which leads me to believe it was a rebuild at, at some point where you know it was all stripped down and they put parts in it. But the fact that it had been mangled, the receiver had been so mangled, it's it's never going back. And even a and just looking at it, you know, there's value there. It's made out of you know excellent quality U.S. ordnance grade nickel steel. I mean, that's what it's made out of. I mean, it's it's good materials. The barrel is in excellent shape, which is, you know, it, it always shows you the, the the original stock, who knows what happened to that. It's got a, uh, a 1950s Bishop stock replacement with, as I told you, a horrible attempted carving of, of some sort of a wildcat. It looks like a big cross between a house cat and a bear on the stock. So, and it's got the, the ugly white spacers that are, they're kind of nasty looking now, you know, the, the plastic starting to degrade a little bit. So they're they're pretty funky looking. And it's got the ebony forend, you know, like a like a Remington 700, you know, that kind of a deal, that kind of look, the old 700 BDL. So anyway, there, you, you have to look at that and say, well, what's the value here? And and as I explained last time, there were really two, two real, cor- there's, there's three real courses of action. And I've decided on the, the lowest cost one simply because that's that's all this is really worth you could take it and you could strip it and might get 300 might get 300 might get a little more out of the parts you could strip it and do that if somebody wants to buy them uh, is there a market for this Remington barrel well probably a, a criterion barrel the brand new 1917 barrels are about 200 bucks so this one, if it was dismounted, could probably be sold for that. Uh, the, the trigger guard and the floor plate, I don't know. I would say that they're original and they're unmolested, which is nice. Whether somebody's looking for them or not, I don't know. Um, I don't just don't know what the market is, but I would assume that would be worth 50 to maybe maybe $70. And the bolt, maybe 125 So you're looking at uh, you could maybe 350 bucks in parts maybe if somebody needs them and wants to buy them my assumption would be that and and to do that you'd have to kill the rifle you you basically take the receiver off the receiver is now fundamentally worthless so i, I mean nobody wants a mangled 1917 receiver that i know of so anyway um or if it's got any value it'd be very notional you know certainly under 50 dollars certainly you know, not even worth the transfer. Well, yeah, it could be CNR, I suppose, but um, certainly not worth the, the transfer and all that. It just you're, there's just not that much there. So even if you said there's four hundred dollars worth of parts, you go on a gun broker and you can find similarly mangled <laughs> 1917s occasionally, and they start out at about three hundred dollars. So I'm going to say that if the parts are worth more than the total, you might get. A little more out of it but you really have to look at about 300 bucks as the the absolute top dollar on this rifle so to make it very quick there are two two things to do one is you could put as much military hardware as you can back on it including a stock and and the bands and and the uh, uh, the fore end, the the end cap with the bayonet lug and all that stuff and I do have the rear sight for it too I forgot or not the rear sight I'm sorry the front sight so you could put all that stuff back on it and then you could mount a scope like one of the reproduction uh, Springfield, you know, the M82 or the M73B1 or whatever they called that thing. Um, you know, the early kind of World War II scopes. And you could have a fake sniper. You could do that. The cost of that, though, is, is just prohibitive. I mean, uh, you're really looking at perhaps... anywhere from 200 to 250 dollars to restore to get a a military stock and that might even be just a p14 stock which doesn't fit very well because the 1917 had a few dimensional changes and you might have to uh, do some dremeling but even if you get a a p14 stock on there with all the hardware you're into that for you know 150 200 dollars and the 
reproduction scope and some sort of mount to put it on um, you know that can run you three the, the scope itself an m82 copy scope runs about 350 bucks so as, as you can see all of a sudden now this thing is starting to get into the five to six hundred dollar realm and that's without any of the work being done like finding a mount the mount might require a spacer because the o3a4 mount is a little is different i it's more trouble than it's worth and you're probably going to wind up with labor and parts you could wind up with easily i could see this thing going seven bills to produce a fake sniper that never was now you could say well that's that's really not that bad at least you'd have something uh and i don't know that it would look all that great i don't i don't know that it would look all that great a lot of the stocks you find they're either incredibly expensive or they're old p14 stocks which have had the the volley site the front volley site plate ground down i mean it just that just seemed to be a loser to me and i don't really want to invest that kind of money in it so what i've decided to do is have just a regular scope mount you know an inexpensive one piece mount put on it that'll take weaver rings put on a one inch maybe a vintage weaver scope and you know plop it in its stock and maybe if i can find somewhere you know on a bargain bargain bin or or something a a um, cheaper replacement stock certainly an under fifty dollar stock i might replace the the ugly stock that's on it but if i put a a small maybe a four power at the most old weaver scope on it on a uh, on a on a solid one piece mount you know then it be kind of becomes the sporter that somebody envisioned and it would be a rifle with utility um, it'll still it's still a strong action uh, the barrel looks like it'll shoot very well the stock that's on it is is comfortable if unsightly it is comfortable so you know that may be the way this goes and it just kind of lives as a sporter and then you know it it could also be you know kind of a rough duty gun I'm not a fan of truck guns I've told you that before for a variety of reasons but if you have some rural property or you're going into a rural area it's nice to have maybe a low-cost effective rifle and you know basically there's nothing on the North American continent that can't be killed by a you know 24 inch um, 30 out six firing 180 grain bullets you know 180 grain soft nose bullets are, are pretty good medicine and you can even you can even kill a, uh, a pretty large Bruin with one of those so I mean, it would be a good gun, a good gun for that, a gun that's useful, and it's made out of excellent materials. So the value is there. So you do have the uh, durability and reliability of that military action. And eh, not a not a bad idea, not a bad idea. Uh, a gun you could take with you for, for um, you know whatever use, and it's a low cost deal. Since I'm into it for nothing, and since I would only be actually investing in having the uh, scope the scope base put on um you know we'll we'll see where that goes but uh it may be an unsightly but it might have utility and at least a little bit of useful value that way so that's the update on the bubba gun and it'll probably be a while this may be an over the winter project before i get i get through with it okay oh here's another thing the uh professional sports man have you seen those guys i mean are is it just me or are professional sports just in the toilet i mean nobody's really people are a little bit excited over football but not that excited nobody's excited over baseball and whatever the nba was doing with some sort of grandiose tournament there's just no there's just no um interest in that at all i don't see it i just don't see it anywhere so I, I really think that the uh, professional athletes have have really, you know, they're killing the goose that's laying the golden egg. And, you know, maybe these $500 million contracts and all the rest of it are finally souring people. Um, you know, which, which is a good thing for the shooting sports because people need to get off the couch and out from behind their 70-inch TVs and actually go do some real stuff. And so I, I'm hoping that it rejuvenates the shooting sports a bit. Not that they were ever 
weak or lax because you know nobody nobody really likes crowded ranges but i'm hoping that interest will kind of pick up and a lot of the new gun owners will maybe pick up the hobby not only just buy the gun because hey they were scared watching the evening news during the coronavirus pandemic and all the follow-up protests um, but maybe they'll pick up the hobby too maybe though it'll generate some interest and if that happens you know to help that happen i think that uh, ammo manufacturers need to start they need to start kicking in i mean we can't expand the sport on the back of expensive ammunition and not everybody can hand load although i think that's one of the wisest things you can do not everybody can do that so we do need to have moderately if not modestly priced ammunition starting with 22 long rifle and going up and at least catching uh, 9 millimeter, 38 special and, and a few of these other other calibers and then into the rifle realm you know we need to see tall ammo back on the shelves we need to see all kinds of 5.56 on the shelves we need that as a sport and the ammo manufacturers better figure it out they better figure that out okay last thing I gotta say is I was watching I can't remember if it was Forgotten Weapons or, or, the, or the other one but I guess it was Forgotten Weapons and they were talking about the what would Stoner do and there was kind of a veiled inference and I was asked about this hey you know there's gonna be a military trial at some point what do you think about that because people know I'm not a real fan of that I, I think it's a game a gamer gun and it's the diet version of Diet Coke I've said all that before I said, hey, good luck to him. I mean, good luck. I don't know anything other than what other people do. There was just kind of that one very quick reference to a military trial at some point in the, not in the foreseeable future, but maybe not the immediate future. So, you know, however that goes, that goes. I, I would say that I can predict right now that while it may be an interesting concept and it may even get looked at, it, it will ultimately be rejected on grounds of durability and reliability or it will get militarized usually when something's militarized okay what happens to it well it gets ruggedized well how do you ruggedize something you make it heavier and stouter that's what you do when you militarize something if for a while we as a matter of fact we still do in the u.s military they have you know these deployable computers that go places it's not the stuff that you could you go down in Walmart and buy those kind of laptops they had these things with ruggedized cases ruggedized electronics and everything else and they're bigger and heavier than a regular laptop um, there's a reason the M1 Garand when you pick it up it feels stout it everything on it is built to last and I would even say even the uh, M16A1, A2 and, and M4 have ruggedness built into them same thing with the beretta same thing with the 1911 the new sig i don't know enough about I, it looks to be though looks to be the same so you know when you militarize something you make it tougher heavier and able to survive very challenging environments so i i don't think that any military would go for the hollow sun <laughs> just not only from where it comes from but but just kind of the frailty of it and nor did nor do you want a a rifle that only has a primary electronic sight you have to have some sort of backup sight on it uh, you know I realize they have had uh, you know certain rifles that, that have not had a backup iron sight but I think that that's a that's a mistake I think that is a mistake you, you really need that because when it when the optical sight for whatever reason is not working anymore you you need some other way just to sight the gun even if it's just a simple close range flip up type of sight okay and that's about it that's about it so we can now start my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers and here's the first question what do you think of 50 BMG rifles? And uh, this, this kind of came, I, I, I know somebody, and I mentioned it um, before in previous podcasts, obliquely, but never really discussed it. Uh, there, are, there are rifles out there that can fire the 50 caliber Browning machine gun round. Um, 
most of them are most of them were designed for long range type of of shooting because that round will go a long way uh, some of them were adopted by the military predominantly as an anti-material type of rifle uh, or that you know something you could shoot a radar dish at long range with and mess it up you know something like that or uh, more more commonly as an anti-UXO and a UXO is unexploded ordnance um, rifle and it was used as a tool that hey you you have an airfield and uh, there's an unexploded bomb in the runway well we've ex we've talked about this quickly before that you know you go out there you don't you don't try to cut the wires and 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 do all that stuff you it's much better if you can just make blow it up and then a, a bulldozer goes out and fills in the hole and and literally 20 minutes later you're landing and taking off airplanes from that so that's that's kind of what it was when you have this unexploded ordnance out there you hit it with a 50 caliber and you either blow it apart um so that it's not dangerous anymore or it explodes and and you just go fill in the holes so that's that's really kind of what it is uh for civilian use again it was long range shooting but you know it's really been supplanted by a lot of cartridges that are just specifically designed for extended long range shooting and so it's really not at the forefront of that anymore that and given the you know cost of the ammunition and, and just and, and if you reload it that's that's another uh, that's another you know real burden is you have to essentially have all kinds of special tools to reload it uh, longer presses and, and trimming and all of that resizing must be a bear so I'm sure you need some sort of compound leverage and I think RCBS came out with some stuff that to do that but um, and, and maybe the other manufacturers have it as well I've never been that particularly interested in it uh, one individual I know bought that I was talking at at the beginning of this question bought one of the semi-automatic M2s which you know I, again it, it's kind of too much of a good thing now for mounting on a restored military vehicle it's it's very interesting I don't know that you're going to shoot it much off of off of one of those um, but you know it is, it's that is an expensive endeavor the uh, semi-automatic m2 I think they call it the m2 maybe they call it the m3 HB something like that and a couple of little smaller manufacturers when they can get the parts kits make these uh, and they're semi-automatic only so but you know a lot of the stuff that goes with it the tripods pintles T&E's all that kind of stuff and it, hauling all that to the range setting it all up and, and really um, you really want to kind of sandbag in those tripods and everybody who's been in the military knows how much fun sandbags are filling them hauling them around and they break open at inopportune moments and all the rest of it so sandbags are not a lot of fun so you know there's a lot of a lot of other things that go along it's not just something that you just toss into the back of the of the grocery grabber and drive to the range and pop out and shoot which are you know what my guns really kind of are I don't have anything like that so um, you know that's that's the deal with that that's a lot of effort goes into that a lot of expense and 50 caliber match ammo is expensive to make maybe even impossible to buy but it's very expensive and now it's just been eclipsed by other longer range you know purpose designed cartridges so I I don't really think too much of them but I think I, I don't think that they're all that useful I think they're expensive I think they're probably a lot of trouble but I also think they'd be a lot of fun you know a lot of fun to, at least to play with one of the reasons I don't go after it one of the reasons I don't have anything to do with it is you know shooting a weapon like that can lead you into some very bad habits with flinching anticipating the shot for you know when your body's just that just that uh, uh, reaction to try to anticipate anticipating that amount of recoil so I don't really want to do it because I don't really want to have to break myself of a whole bunch of bad habits um, it's almost you see the same thing uh, the only the only uh, experience I have which is like that 
is shooting magnum handguns where you know i have to kind of work up so if i shoot a 50 a and e handgun uh, i have to kind of work up to it because if i just pull it out of the safe and go down there and start popping rounds um, i'm not going to be as accurate or or have as you know good a success as i would like so you got to work up to something like that same thing with 50 caliber rifles it, it becomes this um very consuming um obsession that that people chase and uh, so therefore i don't think too much of them and uh, the other the other thing is they're just fantastically the weapons themselves are fantastically expensive they're the only one that's really reasonably priced is always a uh, subjective thing but for about 1200 bucks i think you can buy the base model serbu uh now that's the one where you have to break the action open unscrew the breech plug put the round into the breech plug screw it back in close the breech so you get i think their website said it was like four shots in a minute if you really hustle so that's really what a, a muzzle loader will get you so if you're happy with the rate of fire of a brown bess or a an 1861 springfield rifled musket uh, you'll be happy with that rate of fire and i don't think that's that bad because i don't know that um for just hitting things with a 50 caliber that that's fine i don't think it has any tactical use or defensive use it's just no follow-up shot and way too slow to reload but for a person who just wants to bust 50 cal caps uh i think that would be uh that's definitely a way to go and then i think for about less than 2500 bucks you can get their single shot bolt action and if they would adapt that to take the magazine of their semi-auto uh, you that would be a very interesting gun a magazine fed say even five shot but 10 shot 50 cal would be something that could have some some application beyond just being a range toy so that's what i think about 50 caliber rifles Okay, this is not really a question. This actually comes from a, a discussion I had with my friend of the podcast who uh, has always very interesting, always very interesting perspectives because he doesn't come from, was not born here. He lives here now, but was not born here. So he's seen a lot of different kind of military equipment in different parts of the world. So uh, we were talking about what was the best pistol of World War II and, and he opined well you would probably disagree with me but he felt it was the browning high power and i think he might have been a little surprised to know that i didn't disagree all that much the only thing that i've ever not cared for about the browning high power was the fact that it's it's nine millimeter which i'm okay with i don't jump up and down and joy with it but i i'm okay with nine millimeter but i just i feel that the browning high power was a great absolutely inspired great design which really as much as the 1911 has influenced modern pistols i mean the double stack single feed magazine um although the trigger looks double action it's really not it's a pivoting trigger but it's you know the kind of trigger that you would see in a double action pistol oh the sights on it were good sights it's it's fairly compact uh, the grip is a little thick but it's a fairly compact gun which i really like um, it's a very good gun in many ways and in fact you know i saw some in iraq you know i saw some 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 troops not u.s troops but i think it was british or, or uh, um, canadian were had a browning high power you know and uh, you know very good guns very very good very reliable um, now you know in the World War Two, in the versions up to about oh probably the um, the nineties, you know you did have that small safety was kind of a pain, uh, not as not as easy to put on and off as a nineteen eleven safety, and uh, you know like most armies nobody carries a gun cocked and locked so you know before the double action pistol that just didn't happen, so. Um, but I think for World War II, it was excellent. I, the three guns, I think, that really, handguns, that really stood out in World War II. 
1911, just as it had in World War One, its power, reasonable capacity, excellent reliability, and and really, if you take any time with it, the shootability is very very good. And then, of course, there's the Browning High Power, which introduced higher capacity, a a much more compact frame, a very very well developed and very simple design to field strip. And then, of course, the Walther P38, which introduced a very ergonomic design and an excellent, excellent double action system. So the, all three of those were really excellent handguns. And in fact, um, if you had one of the three, uh, you would not be in very bad shape. You would not be in bad shape at all. And in fact, a lot of uh, a lot of P38s were captured and used by kind of the Allies. You know, as guys picked those up, that was. That was a gun you could pick up. It was a lot more modern than the Luger and, and, and a lot more widespread. The next uh, um, the next thing would be, you know, the Browning High Power was actually used by both sides during the war because they, they forced the Belgians to keep making them. And, and I think it was the SS especially really uh, liked them and used them. And, of course, you know, you have the 1911, which is still kind of a baseline standard gun that everything else is compared to so they're very interesting so which is the best one well i'd say take your choice if you love nine millimeter um i would say the browning high power i like it a little better than the p38 because it has more um more capacity but i like the p38 a little better because you can actually carry it um in the double action mode with a round in the chamber you can carry that very well so and if you're if you're kind of like me though you're you're definitely a big boy guy uh you know there's there's really no substitute for the 1911 so there you go okay have you seen the classic firearms smles and what do you think well i mean i i'm on their their little mailing list and i've bought a lot of things from classic firearms you know i've bought a lot of things from them they are they're a good company they are a very good company and um I bought a lot of things from them, but I, I will have to say some of their Milserp stuff comes out pretty rough, pretty rough. Um, you know, I did buy a, a Star Model BM from them, and I was very pleased with it. Very nice shape. You know, it's got the import stamps on it, of course, and, and it's not perfect, of course, but I think it's all right, and I, I really liked it, and um, I use it quite a bit, as a matter of fact. So I really like the... Um, some of the stuff I've gotten from them. I think we've got also AK-74s and some, you know, an RPK clone and a few things. Bought a few things from them and really liked it. They're a good company to deal with. A very good company to deal with. But some of their some of their surplus bolt rifles that they're getting in kind of these things, they're raggedy. And I mean, I think they want like 600 bucks for these things. And... I always think that it's worth it to pay a little bit more when you can examine it. I mean, if I think a lot of these people that buy these guns, if they actually had a chance to look at it before they they paid, they they might have shaken their head and gone no, because uh, there's nothing. You know, the, it's it's very hard to look at a gun that you've paid a lot of money for and see a chewed up stock, or see a very poor bluing job, or see a very poor you know gun that's just been kind of spruced up to sell on the commercial market meaning they dip blew it uh one guy said that he took it when he raised the front sight ladder he saw that uh it was all shiny underneath where the ladder had been uh <laughs> just put down and they just dipped it and they didn't even finish off underneath it you know they didn't refinish that so there's a whole lot of a whole lot of things that are uh that are kind of wrong with these i would say though that the best thing you can do is try to buy one in person and you may pay more but at least you'll get something you'll be a lot happier with okay and here we come up here's an interesting question if world war three were fought today what would be the iconic small arms that would come out of that conflict and I, I first of all I kind of I'll uh, make fun of uh, Albert Einstein um, I don't know what the best handgun of World War three is but the best handgun of World War four will probably be a slingshot <laughs> so so that's that's what I'd say about that um, if there was and and by World War three I think you could you could mean 
if there was a large conventional war somewhere what would be the what would be the iconic handguns and this could be this could be in eastern europe this could be indian subcontinent or something that draws in other other powers or something um you know just just as a couple you know there's there's probably there's more flashpoints than you can imagine the middle east is even though peace seems to be on the horizon it, there could always be another uh, one that draws in uh some different countries so i would say that it's you know it's the same stuff we see now like the uh I, i'd say first of all if you want to look at the war on terror what are the iconic firearms of that and i would say that uh definitely from the u.s perspective it would be the m4 carbine um it would also be probably the Beretta pistol because that got the most use. So I say those would be the iconic kind of signature sidearms, whether you like them personally or not, or whether they're your taste or not, they would be the ones people would closely associate with it. Um, with Desert Storm, it was more of the A2, M16, A2, and again, the Beretta. Vietnam, obviously, it's the A1 and the 1911. Korea, obviously, the M1 and the 1911, and, and on and on and on. So you kind of kind of look at it uh, from the U.S. perspective. It would be whatever, whatever the M4, and if it has a follow-on, it would be it would certainly be that. You know, if it were today, ten years from now, who knows? Who knows what it'll be? Uh, handgun, obviously, the Sig is uh, is going to be a big player, but you know, the Berettas might come back out of come back out out of storage to uh, just to put something in somebody's hands because you got so many troops that, that have to be armed so it'd probably be the same as it is now on the u.s side kind of the m4 m4 derivative and you know you would have the, the kind of the dmr versions of the m16 a4 and, and a few of those things kind of kicking around uh, maybe some of the 762 versions so you'd have those out there uh on any other side i think you know i don't think there's anything new that would uh, be in the kind of numbers that would make it iconic i think you're still looking at you're still looking at the tried and true ak-47 because there's so many of them they're still making them it's got all the good attributes that we think about it and it's available the 74 i think is a better rifle in many ways but i just don't think it's proliferated enough and there isn't the ammunition support for it I mean, a lot of countries make 762 by 39. A lot of them do, and so you you would see that that would be the most sustainable small arm. Uh, as far as anything else though goes, because a lot of things come under the the umbrella of small arms, not just service rifles and pistols, but uh, there are other things also. I think that if it went on for any length of time. I would think that you will see a reemergence of cannon type technology, meaning like 106 recoilless. Some of these lower cost systems, maybe not on the US side, but definitely on the other side. Um, something like a Javelin missile is expensive. Um, a lot of this stuff is expensive. And, you know, if when you're doing a lot of it, sometimes you have to say, I can afford. A million of these but I can only afford 75,000 of those so which one is the better buy and armies and militaries are they, they essentially have these choices all the time it's all the time they have these so uh, you know what would you know if there's a large-scale land war that would last years you know uh, say two years four years maybe at the most although I think that would be stretching it I think you would see you would see that that a lot of a lot of older cannon type technology would come out and that's that's just the same thing with uh, aircraft and and bomb you know the smart bombs that cost a lot of money uh, hey when you're knocking out a tank pinpoint is good and it's important but when you have 500 tanks advancing enemy tanks advancing maybe you need something that's lower tech but you have more of them so it'd be interesting be very very interesting but I actually don't think that that will ever come about I think that what we're really looking at is more coin we're looking at more contingency operations 
something like uh, Grenada. I was just talking of a very good friend of mine, a Grenada, a Grenada veteran, jumped in with a Ranger battalion. And, um, you know, that was a classic contingency operation. Hey, it's over in four days and it's done. Uh, perhaps something more interventionist like the uh, uh, operations in the Dominican Republic in 1965. You know, that's a very realistic, that's a much more realistic scenario, I think, than, than finding a, what they call a near peer, a country nearly as powerful as the United States, who we have a land war with somewhere. Just don't see that, uh, just don't really see that on the horizon. So anyway, here we are at the end. Uh, this has been the 82nd episode of Old School Guns. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, you can leave them on Podbean, which is our primary uh, distribution point. We're on a couple other ones too. But you can always email me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com and just put podcast question if you want and that way I'll flag it and it'll get from from all the uh, Viagra ads and everything else that uh, people try to sell me so hear from you and until next time this is Old School Guns out <laughs>